Would you pray with me? Our God, Jehovah, Yahweh, you have been with us all the while. And even as we have in recent days been looking at the story of your people in the book of Exodus, we too have been rescued from slavery. We've been brought out of bondage. And you have done this in Christ. You have provided for us bread from heaven. You've given us the bread of life in Jesus. You've given us your word. We thank you that you've led us to water when we needed to drink. And God, we praise you that, that you have done this thing, that you are God. And we thank you that on this day, all of us have a story of praise. And we're here because we want to respond to all that you've done for us. This is not our doing. You have done this great thing. And we give you praise. And we worship you. And we thank you, God, for all that you've done in our lives. We thank you most of all for Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that you would help each of us to know with greater clarity what you have accomplished for us on the cross. And that our church would be a church that exalts Christ alone. I pray for those today who are still on the journey, seeking to understand what it means to trust you, to give their lives to you. I pray that today would be the day of salvation, that we would all turn to you and worship you as a result of our time together today. So Lord, use me. Speak through your word. May we never be the same. In Christ's name we pray. Amen and amen. Well, I join Brian and Stephen, all who've been a part of, of leading us today to say thank you. And what a wonderful day it is to worship the Lord. The sun is shining again uh, and uh, spring is coming soon. And it is sure enough the Easter season and I hope that you'll avail yourself to all the good things that are happening uh, in our church in the days to come. We gather together because it, it's this discipline of remembrance and today we're going to do so. We remember again through our singing and through all that's it's done through baptism what Christ has accomplished for us and before we move ahead this is the final uh, sermon if you're a guest uh, you can pick up right where we've been but we especially are glad that you're here uh, this is the final sermon of a series of messages that we began at the beginning of the year it's called the Moses model we've been looking at Moses not as the perfect man or, or to say hey be like Moses be like Moses but because he serves as a model of what it is to ultimately trust the Lord and to see how God uses a normal person like me, like you, to accomplish, his, to accomplish his great purposes. Now, as I think about that, God using just a normal person, I want to pause for a moment before I enter into this sermon and have you turn to the book of Exodus to pause and reflect on one of my great heroes of the faith. This past week, no doubt you heard that Dr. Billy Graham passed away. And I wanted to pause for a moment to reflect on his life and his influence in my life. Many of you know he grew up uh, on a farm just outside of Charlotte, North Carolina, where I'm from. So all of my life, I grew up hearing, learning about Billy Graham. In fact, if you go to Douglas International Airport, you jump on the Billy Graham Parkway that takes you uh, into town, always to my, my home and where I was uh, born and raised, and now to see my, my mom and family there. Um, and you see the museum, uh, the library there, where, where he will uh, be buried by his wife. His wife, Ruth, is, is, is there, and her tombstone, you might know, it reads, uh, it, it says, construction completed. Thank you for your patience. It says, end of construction. 
Thank you for your patience. And we're going to celebrate his life. I know that will happen across the world internationally today. But uh, I, I came to know of Billy Graham. I never met him, but I've been to many uh, crusades and such. But my grandfather was a friend of Billy Graham's. He was the pastor at the First Baptist Church in, uh, way back in the day, and he and Billy Graham were friends. I came to know some of, the, the, some of his best friends, the members of the Billy Graham Association, and those who traveled with him early on. Grady Wilson became a member of our church. Um, Grady, uh, you might know the name Cliff Barrows, uh, George Beverly Shea sang along with him. He's actually sung here in our church before, uh, before he passed away. But um, Grady Wilson was his best friend growing up. He's the one who invited a tall, lanky, 15-year-old Billy Graham to a Mordecai Ham uh, crusade, a revival, where Dr. Graham came to Christ. Over the course of several weeks, he preached there in Charlotte, and he went, and night after night, Billy Graham went, and he heard the gospel, and he responded. Now, as I, I think about uh, that, just that moment, uh, I'm, I'm reminded that, you know, many of us, I know that none of us, can be Billy Graham. I would argue there's never going to be another Billy Graham. He preached to 215 million people, it's estimated, in 182 different countries. And, and I would guess there's not going to be another Billy Graham. He preached to that many people in person, shared the gospel. And millions came to faith because of his preaching. But I would argue that all of us can be a Grady Wilson. Every single one of us. To invite a friend to come and to hear the gospel, hear what Christ has done for us. Every one of us can do that. And as we celebrate the life of Billy Graham, behind his life is one friend who said, come with me. Friends, all of us can do that. And at this Easter season, I just want to pause and encourage you to do so. Invite friends to come and join us. Invite a friend long before Easter Sunday gets here. Just engage your friends, invest in them, and invite them to come. That's what we're all about. I'm curious, how many of you came to Christ because of the preaching of Billy Graham? Raise your hand. If you came to Christ at a, at a crusade, I see several of you raising your hand. You know, it's been true for many years. If you ask a crowd this size, how many of you came to faith? There's always some. I did it on Thursday morning at our men's Bible study. We had a couple of men who came to Christ through Dr. Graham's um, preaching directly. Many of you, maybe you were drawn to Christ through some of the what were progressive, innovative ways through films. And in, in fact, even in gathering in stadiums was quite, quite the radical move uh, back at that time. But I want you to see uh, a picture that I, that I pulled from the Indie Star. I think we have a picture of it here. It's an editorial cartoon. And it says, this is, you know, as if St. Peter's there at the gates. But Dr. Graham is standing there and it says, Billy Graham, millions of people here want to thank you. And I, I, I just posted that picture and and it, it caught on, went viral. 28,000 people have shared that little picture that I posted. And then there have been over 100 people who've been responding on it. Some saying, well, Billy Graham didn't say, save anybody. Nobody's going to thank him. We're going to be thanking Jesus. I said, oh, okay, all right. I don't even respond to that kind of thing. Um, we know that it's Christ who saves. Dr. Graham, when I was asked this week to reflect on his life, reflected on his humility, Right? His integrity through decades and the simplicity of the gospel message. He had one message, and it was that Christ lived the perfect life for us, that we're sinners in need of grace, that He died on a cross for our sin, and then He rose again 
so that we might also join him, this victory that he has brought to us over death and sin, that we too might be saved and live a life forgiven. 1 Corinthians 15, 3, Paul says, I bring this, this to you of first importance. He says, there's only one priority message. There's only one message. And he says, it's that. It's Christ died on the cross for our sin. He was buried and he was raised again. And if we receive his grace, receive that forgiveness, the punishment for our sin taken upon himself, we too can be saved. Friends, that's the simple message that we have. I wonder, perhaps there are those in your life who just need to hear that message. Let Dr. Graham's life be an encouragement to you and a blessing to you. It's been an inspiration to me. I grieved his loss, as I wonder if there'll ever be another Billy Graham. But I'm inspired by his life, and I want my life to count. I suppose we could say that, you know, if we get to heaven and uh, the Bible says when all of us die, we, we, every person will die and then face judgment. The question you could, you could argue is asked, what, what did you do with my son, Christ? Did you receive his grace? I wonder if the second question that could quickly be asked of each one of us, who did you bring with you? Who have you shared the gospel with? Did you take this treasure and bury it or did you Share it with others in your life. Friends, let's let all of us be inspired by the life of Dr. Graham, that we would be witnesses, that we'd share the gospel with everyone we know. Praise be to God for Dr. Graham. I want you to turn to Exodus chapter 32. Uh, This is our text for the day, and I want to uh, really challenge us today. You're going to know this story. It's the story of the golden calf. While you're turning there, my son Travis... um, while he was growing up, one of his favorite things to do was to build uh, and play with Legos. Anybody? Uh, uh, he just loved Legos. And from the time he was about two, three, four years old, he was building all kinds of things. And as he got older, it got harder and harder, but he just continued to build. And I thought, well, we clearly have a prodigy on our hands. And then I realized, no, really, all he's doing is following instructions. That was all he was doing. Even before you can read, you can build Legos and follow the instruction. They have a picture. It says, put this here. Turn the page. Put this here. Now do this. And at the end of following the instructions, you then have this incredible village or, or person or Death Star or something that can cost upwards to a couple of hundred dollars, um, in fact. And then... When he becomes 13, you have bags of Legos, and you don't know what to do. After Those are dangerous, too, by the way, stepping on several hundred of those. Um, but he loved the Legos, and really it's just all about following instructions. Why is it that we then grow up and we have such a hard time following instructions? God gives us clear instructions in his word, and we turn from his word believing that we have a better way Why is it so hard to worship God and God alone? This is the question that we're going to ask. So I want you to look at Exodus 32, and you're going to see this popular uh, story, or well-known story, I should say. Moses has gone up to Mount Sinai. He's receiving the Ten Commandments at this time. In fact, the Ten Commandments are given in in Exodus 20. We're going to be looking at the Ten Commandments this summer, in fact. That's why we've kind of catapulted across that portion of Scripture. We're going to look throughout the summer. At the, at the Ten Commandments and how they apply today. In Exodus 32, follow along with me. I'm reading from the ESV, which you have there in the Pew Bible in front of you. 
I'm going to read 14 verses so you can just follow the story, and then we'll seek to uh, apply it to our lives, understand it, and then apply it. That's what we do every week here. Verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in your ears, or in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from them, or from their hand, and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are the gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people whom you brought out up out of Egypt, or the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord, his God, and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, it could be Jacob, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring, as the stars of heaven in all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Now here's what I want us to do. I know that immediately we think uh, that all of us have a little bit of trouble thinking, well, I'm not an idol worshiper. I'm not building idols. I don't have a golden calf in my home, and we're not going to do that. Let me ask you, why is it so hard for us to worship God and God alone? John Calvin, the great reformer, in his classic Institutes of the Christian Religion, he said that the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. In fact, Nietzsche, the philosopher, said that there are more idols than there are realities in life. People have asked me, Jeff, are these gods? Are they worshiping gods, idols? Or are they worshiping nothing? They're worshiping gods of their own imagination. There's only one God. God alone, Yahweh, Jehovah, whom the choir has sung about. But what I want us to see here is a different kind of step-by-step -step instruction. 
want to take a different angle on this passage, and I want us to look at how to make an idol. So we're going to follow the steps here, step-by-step guide to idol making. The first step that we see here is in verse 1. The first step to making idols is this. Stop waiting on God. The moment we stop waiting on God, we begin to make our idols. Impatience and expediency is the stuff of idol making. It says that Moses delayed. They, They wouldn't wait on him anymore. The moment we stop waiting on God, we begin to craft our idols. And so I want to ask you today, what are you waiting on? Think about this. Some of us are waiting on something to happen. Are you waiting with patience before the Lord? Some of us are waiting for circumstances to change. Maybe you're waiting on someone else to change. And you're deciding before God changes them, I'll take it upon myself to change them. They need to change and conform to my image. And so I will enter into this. It's been said that God is often, uh, uh, he's often late, but, but, he's, but, he's, but, he's, but he's always on time. He, he's always right on time. He doesn't move in the same way that we want him to. And when we, get, when we get anxious and we start to worry, we take it upon ourselves. Let me ask you, are you waiting in prayer? Think about your own life. What are you waiting on? And how is it that we're quick to move before God has said to move? I'm certain there are pastors and churches that have moved ahead before God said go. Moses would learn this. So that later in Exodus 33, he would say, Lord, if you do not go before us, if you don't go with us, don't lead us up from here. Do you live your life that way? Could it be that what you're seeking in your life, what you want to see happen, is not what God wants to see happen in your life at all? What if he simply wants you to turn to him? What if the answer is actually him? And he's desiring that you would turn to him in prayer. What are you waiting on these days? Often in our waiting, instead of waiting on God and turning to Him, finding contentment in Him, we instead fill up that emptiness, those those things in our lives, the void that we find in our lives with other things. That's what idols are. Seeking to fill up in us what God alone is designed and purposed to fill. So where where or to whom do you go to? When When you want God to move and He is not moving in the way that you want him to. God says, wait. I will supply your needs. God often tells us to wait. Think about it in his word. You know, I think oftentimes we move ahead with maybe a purchase of something when we don't have the money to pay for it. We're not content, so we move ahead. God says, wait until marriage to have sex. We decide, well, no, my way is probably better than your way. I'm not going to follow that instruction regarding Uh, spiritual or biblical sexuality we want to move ahead and fill up what only God can fill up in us what are you waiting on these days and are you waiting in prayer notice it says that the people gathered themselves up to appeal to Aaron Aaron is second in command so Moses is gone they turn to Aaron to bring some kind of legitimacy to their rebellion think about it if he didn't give them kind of this this uh this image of pressing on and doing this and joining him in it, then, then there would be a different perception regarding their idolatry, right? Leaders can lead people to or away from idolatry. Parents do the same. Parents, are you teaching your, your children to worship God and Him alone? To turn to Him when they're in need? 
Not to rush in to fix things according to how we might think they ought to play out. Pastors and leaders, teachers, parents, friends. We can all lead others to God and God alone. You know, Scripture plays out the illegitimacy of their actions here. Now the, now the Ten Commandments, which they're about to receive, the first commandment of all, there's only one God. There is no God before me. And the second commandment, you remember what it is? No graven images. They're blatantly disregarding God. They are clearly confused about the nature of Yahweh. He's not like other gods and idols that will ultimately let us down. They're revealing that they don't know who He is. So they're learning, they're growing, but they're essentially saying, hey, let's just be like Egypt. Instead of let's pursue God and wait on Him, the constant subtext of this story running throughout is let's just be like the culture around us. In fact, the second step, you might say, is to remove and replace. Remove and replace. See, here's what's happening. The spiritual world controls the physical one. But in a system of idol-making, we seek to take the physical world to control the spiritual. And in essence, we are creating our own gods. They say, up, make us gods whom shall go before us. We want to control God. We are, in essence, becoming our own gods. Step two, remove and replace. It says here, as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt. Listen, the second step is this. Ascribe the work of God to something or someone else. And here's what they're doing. They remove God as the source of what has happened in their lives, and they replace Him with someone or something else. See, there's no, where did He go? Or maybe we should send someone to look for Moses. Aaron just enters right in. And again, impatience and expedience leads us to idol-making. That's why so many of us who have great means and affluence are quick to rush to idol-making. We become expert idol-makers because we have more options, more diversions, more possibilities. With greater means, there's more options, and idol-making becomes more prevalent and more dangerous. I'm praying that the Spirit of God will reveal to us, each of us, how we ascribe to other things that which God alone has done and has given to us. This is what it means to take His name in vain. Not to worship Him for all He's done. And, and to how He satisfies us, but to ascribe to other things that, it, that I have done this. My good education has done this. You know, I made the right choice over here and we have done this thing. Let's celebrate ourselves. And instead we worship and celebrate God. Step three is this. Look at this. Look around and compare. Here's what they're doing. Just look at dominant culture around you and make your gods to look like their gods. That's what they've done. Again, they've just turned to Egypt. Let's just do what we've seen in Egypt. Instead, Paul would say in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. They'd seen it done in Egypt, and instead of letting Scripture be our guide, we look at culture around us, and we start to blend. It's called syncretism. It's taking religious or cultural uh, possibilities and drawing them into one, trying to make it fit what we want Christianity to be. We call it cultural Christianity. It's not a biblical Christianity, but one that has been adopted and guided, molded by 
culture as much as anything. Instead of letting Scripture be our guide, we take on common cultural aspirations and focus our lives there. Look around. We make sports our idols. Think about how much time and energy focus many people bring to sports. Some people are defined by them. Uh, Even our bodies can become idols, as strange as that is. How much time and money do we spend on our bodies, obsessed over how we look, resulting in eating disorders or addictions to diets or even addiction to exercise? We spend so much money on looking just right, getting just the right clothes. Could it be that we we bring attention and, and, and a sort of idol worship even to our own looks, our bodies? Technology can become an idol. What are our phones doing to us? Many of us are, are more apt to look at our phones without ceasing than to pray without ceasing. We're more apt to turn to technology or to television or, or we spend more time on Netflix than we do in the Word of God. In verse 2, Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold and bring them. I want you to notice the whole family's impacted by that. Not just the idol worshipers. Everybody suffers as a result. Your sons and your wives, your daughters. And they said, look at this, they said, these are your gods. The people said, Aaron didn't say this, the people said this. Notice the people who make the proclamation as to who these gods are. Aaron's no longer leading, he's being led. He's abdicated his leadership, and it's a free-for-all. The people together have said, this is the kind of God we want. And God is left out. It's been said that God made us in His image, and then we quickly return the favor. We've created Him in our own image so that we can control Him. Step four, repeat steps one through three until it feels right. Here's what they do. They refuse to wait on God, remove Him. They ascribe life's blessings to someone else or something else, and they take on uh, idols of dominant culture. Then let's just get confirmation from each other that this is right. We do this. Let me just hang out with people who just agree with me. Let me gather around people who agree with me. It'll sound more credible. I'm starting to believe this myself. I'm starting to believe that my idols really are coming through for me. And watch this. Here's the insidious thing. For a moment, they do. You get a new dress. Whew, I feel good right now. Until it's out of style. I'll get me another one. Wow, I'm starting to feel pretty confident uh, in, in the way I'm, I'm doing this or that. I think I am in control of my life until we're not. See, for a moment, our idols serve us. But what happens is, Aaron makes a proclamation. Watch this. Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. That word Lord, in verse 5, is the name Yahweh. He's, he's again, ascribing. Now now this is true syncretism. Let's, Let's combine the idols of Egypt. Let's combine cultural dominant values and bring that into my Christian life. So ultimately, I don't look any different than the world though I claim to be a follower of Christ. It's cultural Christianity. It's why the world looks at those who are believers and they say, I see nothing different in your life. 
In fact, I see maybe much more of a judgmental spirit because you seem to think that you've got it together, and I don't. But think about it. What we do then, step five, is this. We make good things ultimate things. That's what they do. That's what this feast is all about, this syncretism. It's a blending of religions and culture. We, we do it. Uh, again, in this step, give cultural events religious significance. Now, now think with me on this. Now, we don't do this, do we? There's nothing inherently wrong with sports or holidays or vacations or, can I say it, Sundays? You know that for many people, going to church is just a cultural experience. Billy Graham said he thought that 70% of all people in our churches are unsaved, not believers. It's a cultural event. Let me ask you a challenging question. Do you go to church? Did you come to church today, or did you come to worship the Lord? Do we go to church, or do we go to worship? Those are two very different things. And even as we've heard today, do you go to serve the body? Do you go to be with family? Do you come to remember again of the great gospel of our Lord Jesus? We make good things, ultimate things. Think about sports again, just as an example. Sports have reached religious proportions in America. Has it not? We have stadiums that would embarrass the ancient Greeks. We bring offerings of great sums of money. We have songs of praise and chants. We have a community of fans that bind people together. We're entertained by them. We can't wait for more. And when they don't come through for us, they crush us. Maybe there's a better way to find our identity and our worth in this life. Church attendance decreases as a devotion to sports has grown exponentially. Is there a correlation? I think so. Even nationalism can become an idol. Church, again, cultural activity, uh, church can become an idol. That may sound strange to you. It's a syncretism. It's what we're seeing here. They think they're worshiping. And then finally, the last step is this. Sacrifice for it. That's your final step in idol making. Sacrifice time and money and family in the name of this idol. I knew this message would be a hard one to preach and a hard one to hear, but if you want to know where you're sacrificing, just look at your calendar. Look at how you spend your money. Look at your bank account. Look at your checking account. Look at how you spend. That'll point you to your idol. Then there's a shift. Watch this. There's a scene change. God speaks. We haven't heard from him yet. We've only heard about the people and from the people and Aaron. And then God speaks to Moses. There's a shift in the scene. He's still on the mountain. And then in verse 7, he said, notice God says, he doesn't say my people. He says, Moses, these are your people. <laughs> They're not acting like my people. Moses is going to come back around and he's going to remind him, no, 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 these are your people. Don't forget this. So let's look real quick as we close. How to dismantle an idol. God shows us how to dismantle an idol. We can follow his steps in a way. God destroys our idols. First, God calls it what it is. In verse 7 through 9, he's explicit and he's clear. He just states the facts. He does the same. He's done it for us in his word. You know, they're about to receive the Ten Commandments. We've received the Bible long before the book of Exodus was the event of the Exodus. 
We have it written down for us to know and to understand. But, but we simply agree with God in what He said. That's confession. It's agreeing with God for what He's done. We, we do this. Think about this. They, 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 I mean, we, we, don't, we don't often name sin for what it is. We, you know, uh, a marriage is torn apart uh, by an unfaithful spouse. We, we say, well, he or she, well, they had an affair. No, that's adultery. That's sin. And then as we see, see someone who may be emotionally or verbally or even physically abusive, and we say, well, they have an anger management problem. No, that's sin. We see, we see someone who uh, maybe, you know, does something that, they say something that they can't take back again, or they and say, well, they, or even I, I had a lapse in judgment. No, that's sin. We have a hard time calling it what it is. In fact, if I were to say to you, you know what, you're a liar. That'd probably be offensive. Somebody said that to me. But I'd ask you, and ask confession, how many of you have ever lied before? Raise your hand if, like me, you've lied. The rest of you are lying right now. Uh, <laughs> lying right now, so there's all of us. Um, okay, you're a liar. Je- Jeff, whoa, 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 whoa. Right? Like, they'd be like many of us. Well, I'm not greedy. Uh, are you a giver? Are you, do you share what you have? Might be an idol. I'm not judgmental. Ooh. How many, maybe even this morning, we've already in our minds, we've already made judgments about people. Let's call it what it is. That's what God does. He calls it what it is. You see, anything that we turn to to provide happiness and hope and healing and meaning to our lives, that is an idol. God says that is sin. That is sin, and we need to turn from it. What do you need to turn from today? God says, you know, here's why. They're corrupted. They're a stiff-necked people. Pride is the motivation behind our idol-making. We want to control our own lives. And then secondly, he responds with righteous anger. His wrath is justified. And then Moses says, please, these are your people. And he, he cries out. He steps in again. Watch this. Moses steps in, and he starts worshiping God as the people should have. He starts to proclaim who God is. He says, you're the one who brought him out of Egypt. You have done this thing. Moses, again, becomes the great mediator throughout the whole story. He's the intermediary. He's the one who stands in the gap. Moses appeals to God's glory and his name, and even here, rather than his mercy. He appeals to God and his promises, to his character and to his glory. And then it says in verse 14, the Lord relented. But I want you to see that the Lord, finally, he remains loving in his wrath. And if we read the rest of this story, you would know that he offers grace, he remains righteous, but those who are guilty still face the punishment for their sin. He remains just and loving at the same time. And as I close this message, I want you to consider the fact that Christ, the great intermediary, the great mediator, has become the greater Moses for us. The entire book of Exodus, all of the Old Testament points to Christ so that the writer of Hebrews would remind us he's the greater Moses. You see, in Christ we see God's promise fulfilled, His character displayed, and His glory revealed. Friends, listen, as we close this message, I want to challenge you. 
The only way to dismantle the idols in your life and in my life are to be captured by a superior satisfaction in Christ alone. To turn to Him alone, to give your life to Him. Or you'll continue to chase after idols that for a moment will fulfill you, will satisfy you. You'll be happy for a moment, and then they will crush you. Every idol will crush you. Christ alone will give you life. The writer of Hebrews says this in chapter 9, verse 15. Therefore, He is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called by or may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. You see, the people who were found guilty of idol-making, they ended up dying in the wilderness. They were struck down by the wrath of God. Instead, God's wrath comes upon Christ, and He, he goes, up, goes to the cross, and He remains, God remains holy and just, and at the same time loving and gracious, because His wrath is taken upon His Son. So that Paul would say in Romans 3.26, it was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Friends, Christ took on your sin so that you can by faith receive His grace, be forgiven, and that you can follow His instructions to salvation. And today the simple instruction is this, identify your idol idols confess your idols trust god to fill the gap because he alone can and turn your life to him give your life to the one who will satisfy your longing worship god and him alone through christ alone turn your eyes to jesus and everything else in this world will fade away because of a superior satisfaction that's found in Christ alone. Let's pray together as we commit our hearts to Him. Let's give our lives to Him even now. Friend, if you receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want to ask you, if you have not come to that point in your life, you can receive Christ even now. Just give your heart to Him. Give your life to Him. He died on the cross for you. He took upon Himself your sin so that you could receive His grace right now and live for eternity and live a life of worship in response. And for all of us who have been worshiping idols, Lord, we turn to You to worship You alone. We're reminded again of why You are our one and only God. And we give You our lives. In the name of Christ, amen and amen. We're going to sing a song that maybe you know. It is turn your eyes upon Jesus. As we look full into his wonderful face, everything else fades away. As we do, I want you to commit yourself to him. Let this song be a song of praise and worship and response. And maybe you'll want to come, even move right now, and come and take me by the hand and say, I want to receive Christ. I want to join the fellowship of the church. We'll also be in the chapel afterwards in the back in our response room, and we would love to talk to you there, talk about next steps. Uh, as we close our time today. But let's all stand together and let's sing together to the Lord. Would you sing it with your heart, from your heart to Him?